This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Good evening and welcome. I'm Trina Hester, Associate General Manager for Development and Grants at KPBS. It's my pleasure to be with you tonight and to celebrate our 10 extraordinary years of One Book, One San Diego. Yes. One Book, One San Diego began in 2006 as a simple idea. We wanted to turn San Diego into one big book club by encouraging residents to read and discuss the same book. Just to give an idea of this program's growth, KPBS had one partner that year, our founding partner, the San Diego Public Library. There weren't many book events then. Fast forward 10 years later, there are more than 25 community partners, and we are so excited that UC San Diego has become one of our newest com community partners this year. Discussions and events have expanded to 100 thanks to our community partners. No, no matter how much one book grows, the goal remains the same, to inspire thoughtful community discussion about timely issues. Tonight is special because the event is being hosted by UC San Diego Library, one of our newest partners. We are so proud and honored to work with San Diego, UC San Diego and hope this partnership continues for years to come. On behalf of the UC San Diego Library, let me say how thrilled we are to partner with KPBS and with our colleagues at the San Diego Public Library and the San Diego County Library, as well as other community sponsors, to celebrate 10 successful years of One Book, One San Diego. This program has positively impacted the community by encouraging a shared reading experience and associated discussions amongst thousands, as well as introducing readers young and old to topics they may very well not have explored before or been exposed to had it not been for one book's dynamic and diverse selections over the last decade. Take, for example, tonight's featured author, Zore Garamani, or Zoe, as she's more commonly known, and her book, Sky of Red Poppies. We were particularly interested in hosting Zoe to discuss her novel because of its focus on an historically important time in Iran, the late 1960s era which led to the 1979 revolution and what it was like living under the rule of the Shah. Her exploration of Iranian culture and history notably fills a gap that continues to exist, at least in this country, when it comes to understanding and, and appreciating the richness of that culture and history. So you're going to learn more about Sky of Red Poppies and Zoe um, in, in just a moment, but let me introduce you first to my uh, colleague, Babak Rahimi, who is the director of UC San Diego's Third World Studies Program and associate professor of communication, culture, and religion, who will lead tonight's discussion. Babak's research is inspired by historical and social contexts and examines the relationship between culture, religion, and politics, ranging from early modern Islamicate societies to contemporary Iran. 
His monograph, Theater State and Formation of the Early Modern Public Sphere in Iran, traces the origins of the Iranian public sphere in the early 17th century Safavid Empire with a focus on the relationship between state building, urban space, and ritual culture. Babak has also co-edited Social Media in Iran, a volume that explores the cultural and political impact of the Internet on Iranian society. Having earned his PhD from the European University Institute in Florence, where my wife and I spent our 30th wedding anniversary, very nice city, Babak also studied at the University of Nottingham, where he obtained an MA in Ancient and Medieval Philosophy, and at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where he was a visiting fellow in the Department of Anthropology. 2012, Babak was a visiting scholar in the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School, and prior to that, at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute in 2010. Given his background and the areas of his, of his research, I'm guessing it won't surprise you to learn that Babak has appeared as an expert guest on various media programs, including the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, BBC, CNN, and NPR. Please join me in welcoming Professor Babak Rahimi. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. You know, hearing you introduce, introducing me to everyone, I noticed that I'm all over the place. <laughs> and I know also that this aspect of being all over the place has a lot to do with me, first of all, being very promiscuous intellectually. <laughs> and don't take that literally. And also being of a diasporic person. Uh, I left Iran when I was 12, and I've been traveling. I'm still traveling. I just came back from Japan and teaching a global seminar. And I think that diasporic element has enabled me to not only do research on various different topics, even though they're all interrelated, but also teach many different classes at UCSD. What I also noticed, though, a few days ago, is that I've actually never taught a class on Iranian literature or Persian literature at UCSD. Why? I still do not know. But I do have plans to teach it. Now, this is how I like to teach a class on, let's just call it Iranian literature. It would start, of course, with the classics of Persian literature. It would go with Ferdowsi Shahnameh, and there's a very interesting, good translation of this classic book. Uh, I would continue with, of course, you know, with uh, Rumi. And there's a lot missing, by the way, in, from the 16th century to all the way to the 19th, 20th century. And that is a long discussion why there's not, first of all, too many of interesting Iranian literature during that period. And also there's not much of translation to begin with. But then when we get to 20th century, we get to quote-unquote modern Iranian literature. And there's so much that I could talk about, about modern Iranian literature. But then finally, I would get to what I call diasporic literature. Diasporic Iranian literature. Now, this literature is not obviously Persian, written in Persian. They have been written in all the way from French to Japanese. In fact, a Japanese Iranian woman just recently won a novel for writing a very interesting novel in Japan in Japanese. And I would assign my students books such as uh, these are some of these are memoirs, Persopolis. I assume that some of you guys have read this book. Um, and also uh, Saffron Sky, A Life Between Iran and America uh, by Asayesh. And I would also assign the, the novel Farner 
by uh, Nahid Raklin, and I would obviously assign sky of red poppy. Yes. <laughs> now, why I would do that is I have several reasons. One is that this book, first of all, is fantastic, um, and the, the story between these two girls is not just a personal story of of simply human interaction, but there's so much political context with this that I would love my students to learn about. 1960s of Iran is really a decade of major political, of course economic, but mostly political turmoil. So much interesting Iranian literature is being written in 1960s to begin with, but also this is the Iran of post-coup era. 1953, there was a CIA-led coup of the Iranian government, Mossadegh's government, and eventually we get a, a kind of a monarchy that is very autocratic, and in place of um, the democratically elected regime of administration of Mossadegh, we get a very vicious security agency, Savak, who's very much controlling Iranian society. Of course, not 100%, but nevertheless, the perception is that this is a highly autocratic state. And this book is very much interacting with that ambience, that political ambience. Now, I do not want to talk about the, the novel, obviously, at this stage. We have the, the privilege of having the author here to tell us about the, the, the novel. But I do want to say something before um, introducing our esteemed author here, that what makes diasporic literature so interesting is the fact that it has a distance, what some scholars call a diasporic distance. Now, this distance has a lot to do with geography, of course, but it has also to do with the way in which the nation is imagined within that distance, the distance of having flown away, traveling, you know, settling down, taking or rerouting oneself in a different environment and now reflecting back on that nation in which that person, he or she has come back, has come from. This diasporic distance allows a kind of an articulation of dislocation, of transformation, personal, global, local transformations, which pop up in a story narrative plot line. And also, what diasporic literature offers is a kind of a new form of knowledge, a new way of seeing the world, seeing yourself in the world. And we have this privilege of having Zoe Gahramani um, to provide this very interesting example of a diasporic, what I call a diasporic literature. Zoe Gahramani is a writer, poet, and artist. She has authored three books, Sky of Red Puppies and The Moon Daughter in English and The Commiserator in her native language Persian. More than 200 of her works, Persian and English, have been featured in the U.S., among which she feels special pride for Sky of Red Puppies, which was a 2012 one-book, one-San Diego selection, and has since been translated to French and Persian. In 2013, more than 30,000 Girl Scouts of San Diego honored Zoe with the San Diego Cool Woman Award. That was very good, yeah. Her second novel, The Moon Daughter, received the 2013 San Diego Book Awards for Best Fiction. Zoe is currently working on her next novel. I'm very much looking forward to this one, The Basement. A voice of the Iranian-American diaspora, her work has been featured in a number of anthologies, including Tremors, 
New Fiction by Iranian American Writers, A Year in Ink, Volume 2, and The Poetry of Iranian Woman. She has won several awards, including the California Stories, Best Fiction at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and the San Diego Book Awards in Short Story category. Over a hundred of her articles have appeared in U.S. publications, including the Writer Magazine, the prestigious Writer Magazine. Drawing from her writing experience as well as 25 years of teaching at Northwestern University, today Zoe enjoys sharing her experiences with the community in general and aspiring writers in particular. She lives in California with her husband and close to their uh, three children. Please join me in welcoming Zoe to UCSC, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Rahimi, for that wonderful introduction. Every time someone does such a great job, I listen and I really want to meet that person. (laughs) I um, can't tell you exactly how it feels to be standing here. For the past seven years, I have been standing on cloud nine and I have no way of getting down. Somebody has to tell me if I have to get down, how do I do that? And I thank you for putting me up there because what's a book without readers? You have put me here and you keep me here by your presence. I look at you and I see so many familiar faces who by now should be tired of seeing this old face, but they show up, they come, and they support. But above all, I want to thank KPBS and the Public Library for the program One Book, One San Diego, not just on my part, but as a writer. It's wonderful to see how they put the book back in the community's hand and say, read now. Something that could, with this age of internet, could easily become obsolete. They do their share in teaching us how to be an educated intellectual community, how to support each other, and in doing so, they have shown no prejudice for which I am very much in debt because who would pick an unknown author with her first book, an author with an unpronounceable name and an accent? That is something. And they had to pick out of all the thousands of books that are out there. This is an honor that I don't think I will ever fully comprehend and come to accept it as a fact. It's still a dream, and I love it. As I was coming into the library, I was reminded of one of my favorite books, Dr. Seuss' book, where he says, Oh, the places you'll go, and oh, I have been places. I am so honored, so thrilled, that the only problem I have with this is that I am every time afraid to put another book out there. What if this is 
going to not take off. And luckily, my second book did win an award, so the San Diego Book Award. So that was a little bit pat in the back. But I, I need support. I need your support. And I live by it every day. And it will never be taken for granted. You give me love, and I hope to give you back as much love, if not more. We could begin with you perhaps describing your interest to write this book in the first place. And then from there we could, uh, honestly, I I have a lot of questions, but I I also really want to focus on the audience here to have more interaction with you. But I think it's probably a good question to ask in the first place, you know, the origins of this novel. You know, where it came about and what made you write this? Okay. For the first year of One Book, One San Diego, I had this signature line in my emails that said, um, inside each one of us, there's a story screaming to come out. Sky of Red Poppies was mine. Mm -hmm. Um, Most writers, their first novel has a lot to do with them. But I wanted to write a story of a friend. Part of the reason I wanted to write this was that I have given birth and raised three of the best Americans I know. And unfortunately, they do not speak, read, or know Persian enough to find their own way through discovering the culture. And they have no way of going back to the time and place where I grew up. Because even if they went back now, it's a whole different country with a whole different set of rules and regulations. So I wanted my pen to, like a camera, take them to the back streets of Mashhad where I grew up to meet my teachers, to meet my friends, to see the good, the bad, the political, non-political, religious, non-believer, All of them, the rich, the poor. I wanted them to be there and feel that. But I also wanted to write this because I left Iran in 1972, long before there was even any sign of such a big change. And I never went back to give my services back to the people who had given me nothing but love and support. And I felt guilty. So how can I pay them back? What can I do for a homeland that to this day I love? So I decided I'll write the story as it is. Not glamorizing everything the way some Westwood people and Beverly Hill people would do, making Tehran look better than Paris, but rather tell them the truth, the good and the bad. So these were the two main motives. And when I first wrote it, I wrote, I wanted the story to be in the fashion of chariots of fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the friend who tells the story of this girl who is um, politically active. And so that's how I wrote it. Roya was nothing but a narrator of Shirin's story. And then the editor said, oh, but 
you have to involve Roya. We want to know how Roya is involved. And I said, but I am Roya. I was not involved. And they say, but you're also the writer, so get her involved. (laughs) And that's what I did. Um, So from age, up to age 17, I would say 90% of the story is based on truth. But after that, in reality, Roya and Shireen were separated, and they had nothing to do with each other. So the rest of it was done through research, through talking to people who had been places, seen things, and involving her. And that's why I could only involve Roya so much, because Roya, being me, is a little bit of a chicken when it comes to daring to do things. Yes, she would dare to maybe rebel a little bit at home, but that's about it. She could not be involved in the um, activities that went out on the street because dictatorship existed even inside the house. And she seemed more of a witness, would you say? Yes. She was a witness, but then I had to get her somewhat active. For instance, I have never seen the Evan prison, but Mm. I had to speak to people who had been Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. create that scene. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it became fiction, But in fiction, we base everything on real characters. Mm. So I remained true to Roya to the very end. She never became a revolutionary. She never joined any parties and so on. But um, she still has a hard time deciding, should I vote or not? And she does vote, but, you know... That's how non-political I am. And we are not talking about the November 8th voting here. Right? <laughs> yes, we are, actually. <laughs> We're just hinting at it because it's nothing to talk about. <laughs> um, um, I do want to ask one more question. Again, this is the temptation of me wanting to ask all the questions. So just one question, and this question has to do with what I felt between Roya and Shirin, this, these two Irans. These two Irans, perhaps you could say the Iran of the religious side, the tradition, and the Iran of the secular. Is that the right depiction of Iran in the 1960s? Or is this, this my own imagination projecting into your novel? No, it is, it is to a certain degree the reality of how it was. However, there was a lot in between that doesn't show in the book. We had people of other religions that are not in the book. In general... I wanted to give this story a universal um, aspect. I didn't want it to be just about Iran. I am sure that those of you who read it at some point saw yourself in there. Was it in school? Was it on the street? Was it when you were um, arguing with your parents about what to study? At some point. So in a way, it is a universal story. You don't have to be Iranian to understand it. You can be from anywhere. You can uh, be from any kind of family having lived your life the way you did. It's important to be placed there. But there again, I um, bow to um, One Book, One San Diego program for opening our eyes and ears to so many different cultures. Uh, We call this country a melting pot. That's 
um, an expression that I have a lot of problems with. I always say we are not a melting pot. Nobody melts. Nobody melts. We keep our originality for generations. Yet we are together. I call it the welding pot, the welding collage, where you can keep your original beauty and stand next to one quite different in looks, in culture, in accent, in even the foods that they eat and the life they live. And yet we form this fantastic culture and collage of a nation that is unique in the world. That's why I don't think we are a melting pot, because if we were, we would be bricks all looking the same, and we are not. All talking the same, and we are not. And so my question was, what can I bring to that collage? What can I bring as an Iranian immigrant to a country that has opened its arms to me, that has given me my success as a dentist, as a university professor, as a mother, as a wife, what am I giving back to it? And I give back every good aspect of my culture. Mm. And I introduce you to it and hope you enjoy it. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I would like to open up to questions. Of course. Please. The two main uh, characters, the two main girls, um, they have, I think, what one of the things that unites them together is their love of poetry. And uh, so this is, they're in high school. And, and so my question is, um, during that time, um, is poetry uh, started when they're much younger, the love and the sharing of poetry? Poetry is woven into the fabric of Iranian life. It is, in a way, a unique love that we share. You don't have to be even literate to love poetry. Our lyrics of most of the songs are classical poems by masters of poetry. And there is, you know, when when they play classical Persian music, it's improvised just like very much like jazz they just musicians sit together and improvise and then the singer can just improvise with them and pick up a book of poetry and read to that music we grow up with poetry with rhymes beginning with the sad lullabies that we have and then in the stories there's poetry you find people who are illiterate who cannot sign their own name yet They have memorized hundreds of verses. And you meet those in the book, and that's the reality. We also, I always mention this, we also have, when you said we have two groups, I thought it's just like the Persian poetry contests. What we do a lot of times, we divide into two teams, and then this team has to read a verse from uh, memory, and whatever letter that verse ends in, that team has to start a verse with that. And of course, we try to end a lot of our poems with the letter J, which has, there are very few poems that begin with that, and usually they get stumped. But that's one of the you know, hobbies that we had in cold winter days. We would sit, the family would sit around the fire and play the poetry game. So no internet, right? Um, 
Come to think of it, no, no. And uh, I think that that is how we start loving poetry, because as a child you are introduced to it. And then in school we had to memorize long, long epics of verses that we had to memorize that to this day I remember many of them. Mm. So, po- and then love stories were told in you know, they were epics, they were long, long. I mean, Nezami wrote five famous love stories in poetry only. And much like Romeo and Juliet, you know, all of our love stories were written in poetry until the uh, 20th century when verse came into novels and love stories. So poetry is us and we can't help it. And you know what? The best part of poetry is somebody says something you don't have an answer for, you just quote a master and leave. You win that argument. Could you tell us a little bit about um, how you immigrated to this country and your background here? Well, I could, except it's not exciting, as you would be. I mean, I, I wish I had the dramatic stories of many post-revolution um, immigrants. But I met my husband in London when I was a student, and he was a visiting professor. And about um, six months after that, I agreed to marry him. So I came to this country to be married and stayed. And in all the years that I have been here, I've only gone back twice. So um, when you add up the numbers of the years I have lived, the majority of it has been here. And so I no longer feel like an immigrant. Uh, That's why I can joke about election. Mm. (laughs) Um, Maybe I could ask a follow-up question. When you returned back to Iran, was it before the revolution or after the revolution? It was after the revolution. Um, My older daughter um, happened to um, decide that she wanted to go and visit. Mm. Mm. And she was um, only 19 at the time. And of course, I couldn't just send her on her own. So I went with her. We had the greatest time. Um, the Islamic um, restrictions on what women wore did not bother us because it was spring, it wasn't too hot for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the family made sure that we had a dream trip. So, mm. Wow, good, thank you. But the reason many people say, if you liked it so much, why don't you go back more often? <laughs> and the reason is that every time I come back, I am back to feeling homesick for a long time. And that was unfair to my family. I had to decide where I belong, where I stay. And I decided, as long as I have these lovely American people call me mom, I might as well stay American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. Well, I have to confess that I have one. I have a question. Yeah, I have uh, you know, when I uh, went to get a copy of your book uh, in our library and looked it up online, there was a genre associated with the book that I've never heard of before. You know, a genre like film noir, if it's a film, or a historical fiction. But the genre coded into your book is Bildungsroman. <laughs> and, did you, and it's basically, and it's like, what? And I had to look it up. Uh, and it kind of means like coming-of-age story. 
like uh, 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 Jane Eyre, David Copperfield. Right. Was that was that part of your big intention? Uh, intention was this a coming of age story? Is this truly a Bildungsroman? It it kind of was because um, when I learned about, I grew up in a society where politics, as far as we were concerned, we would say anything to do with politics, and the answer was politics is none of your business. So in a country where politics was none of my business, when I couldn't even mention the name of Dr. Mossadegh without my father putting me in my room for a whole day for speaking the no-no, that is none of the children's business, um, it was fascinating to find out suddenly things are going on out there, things that I don't know about. And who but my best friend is at the center of it all, and I don't know. So in that sense, yes, it was coming of age. I mean, coming of age can be at any point where our eyes and ears open to a huge fact that was completely unknown to us. And for me, that was coming of age. But also, it is considered coming of age. I usually write um, pretty clean because um, I don't swear and I don't know too many swear words. I'm learning, but <laughs> I don't know. And in my books, you don't find any... The worst that you find is one time when my father calls me the S-word. So... You know, that's that's the only thing. And I think everyone's so wondering in, what the S word is. <laughs> in that sense, um, it is good for people who are reading books of coming of age, which is mostly a lot of teenagers like to read that. A lot of high school students have read my book. Most of the local high schools have read it and discussed it. And it is important to present to them the kind of literature that we don't have to take out pages to give our children the book. Yes? Would you tell us a little about your sister? Is she here in the United States? My sister now, here is, when I said that everything up to age 17 is absolutely true, in a way it is and it isn't. I don't write for the market. But as I am writing, at least, or rewriting, I am mindful of my readers. I was an avid reader of Russian books as a very young girl. And I remember having to draw myself a little sketch to know who's whose cousin and whose name belongs to where. So in my stories, I try to minimize the characters, narrow it down to those that really matter. I am the youngest of seven in my family. So I have four sisters, actually. What I did for you, so that you wouldn't have to memorize all those names, I picked an easy name, Mitra, and I put all four of them into one character in a way that has saved my neck. Because when one of them says, is that part me? I say, nah, that's that that's one. The one. <laughs> but my sisters, one lives in France, one lives in England, one lived in England and moved back to Iran, and one is between Iran and France. So they do often come and visit me here, 
and they understand why I don't go back. They don't seem to mind. And they're all good people. They've sort of, the traits in Mitra that used to bother me no longer exist in any of them. Mm. I just wanted to know when your next book, The Basement, is coming out, and if you'd tell us a little bit about the storyline. Okay. Thank you for asking that. Um, Yes, um, I wrote The Basement on a comment, based on a comment that came from one of my readers, or many of my readers. They kept on asking me, will there be a sequel to Sky of Red Poppies? And I said, no, because as far as I know, that story ends where this ends. And so I went ahead and wrote The Moon Daughter, which they liked, and some people even liked it more than the first one, which is great for me. But then I read The Help, which I'm sure many of you have read, and it suddenly dawned on me, there is a story, maybe not a sequel to Sky of Red Poppies, but a parallel. Because I wrote Sky of Red Poppies from my point of view. But I was a minority in that society. The educated and the well-to-do had their own story, and the help had their own. And the reason I called it the basement are two. One is that they lived in the basement of most houses. And two, that they were, many of them, were the foundation of the big changes that came about. So they were the basement. And I thought I would publish it by this fall. What I did not understand is that when I write books, I become those characters. Sometimes when something sad happens to those characters, my husband wakes up three in the morning and sees me typing and sobbing at the same time. And he says, he just shakes his head and says, you're nuts. You know. And he, he is right, because here he has given me this comfortable life in Southern California, and I'm staying up three in the morning to cry and write. Mm. But when I wrote from the point of view of Hassan the cook, Mamad the gardener, Akbar the driver, and Nane. Suddenly, it became difficult to love Roya and her family. And the more I got into their characters, the more fault I saw with Roya and with the likes of her. So, I hesitate sometimes, write my funny book that you asked about, somebody asked about it today. I, I am writing a memoir I have written for years, uh, my memoir as a dentist, um, making fun of my patients because I was a pediatric pa- dentist and parents just gave me enough to laugh about. So um, that book is titled Drill, Phil, and Bill. And someday it will come out. So it's a good book to fall back on when the basement gets too tough for me. So I'm working between the two, but the way it looks, the basement should be out by next summer, hopefully. Uh, Maybe I could ask you just a quick follow-up question. 
Um, you mentioned something that most writers encounter, this negotiation response with other forms of writing in order to write something new. Uh, which genre of writing, which particular novel or novelist do you think has, not influenced, but has you have responded in your writings that, that could be reflected in your writings as well? Um, well, my love of literature truly began with Charles Dickens. Uh-huh. And I love, still love reading Charles Dickens. Um, Great Expectation is one of, forever, one of my favorites. Mind you, this reminds me of a funny story. The year I was one book one, San Diego, I put the book on Kindle. And one day, my daughter sent me a screenshot from the Kindle rating just before Christmas. Number one in Kindle was Sky of Red Poppy. Number two, Charles Dickens, (laughs) Great Expectation. And she wrote, Charles who? (laughs) She put it on Facebook for me. But that is how I started. And then along the way, I see so, I read so many good writers that it has become impossible to narrow it down to one or two um, of the more contemporary American writers. I love Ann Tyler's books Mm. because she writes, um, she's more character-driven than plot-driven. I don't care so much about the plot as I do about the characters and about the language used. Thank you. Uh, Can we get the next question? Yes. Yes, please. Um, I was interested when Roya would go out to the countryside, her interaction with the employees is the wrong word, but the people she came across there, what would their, those characters, how would they have felt leading up to the revolution? How would that, how would they have felt about that? At the time, and those are true. Those parts that I wrote are true. My father owned plantations that we would spend our entire summer in our summer home there. And I was, I had no trouble kicking my shoes off and running into the fields barefoot and make friends with locals. Um, To the point that one time my father had guests from town and he stopped and said, see that Heard of kids over there, all muddy and dirty. They said, yeah, so that one with the long hair is mine. <laughs> you know, that's how I lived, and I, I loved it. I loved being there, and they loved me for it. Also, um, my mother had been adored by all the people who worked in those plantations. They were sugar beet plantations, and Everyone loved my mother because she was very kind and she was she would for instance near the Persian New Year she was known for preparing packages of new clothes for all the kids in the village and send it to them. So I happened to look so much like her and sound so much like her that that won me a lot of love among them. And don't forget that we live in different times. If you have, let's say, living help right now or even daily help, they know their rights and they know that there is no difference between you and them. And that's a beautiful thing. And so in that sense, they don't feel obligated to love you. But go back to the times of Gone with the Wind. Mammy absolutely adored this family, adored Miss Scarlett. 
didn't care that she didn't have what Scarlett had. Didn't even dare to compare her own life to that of Scarlett's. It was a different mindset. So even though the workers were not treated like slaves, in many senses they were the same. They were they appreciated being in service of whoever had employed them. And so, and if you were nice, double that. They would say, oh, well, she, I have to do this, but she's nice about it. She says, please, that was a bonus. So I never felt that difference until when I went back with my daughter. And this was because I had not gone back in 22 years. And all of a sudden, I saw the difference. All of a sudden, it was no longer, I like those shoes, oh, you can have them. It's, I like those shoes, and it's so. And I'm thinking, oh, they, they've changed. But then, by then, I had changed too. So I did not, it did not shock me as much as it would have if I had not lived, let's say, in this country, if I had not learned along the way that they are the same as me. But it was good to be removed for that period of time and see the change. Not just in them, in almost everyone. Zoe, you said you had six siblings, of which four are girls. Was politics the business of the boys? Was that a statement directed just at you as a girl, or was that directed at you as a child? No, politics was the business of the heavy thinkers and the intellectuals, and my two brothers were neither. (laughs) Yes, we have a question. You've obviously been writing your whole life, your entire life. And so you've raised three children and been a dentist. And were you writing at three in the morning while you were a dentist? Or how were you um, getting the creative side out? I am lucky in that I have lived twice as long as you think I have lived, in that I sleep anywhere between three to five hours a night, and that's all I need. So most of my writing is done at night. My daughter Susie sitting back there has a nice expression. She calls 3 a.m. mom o'clock. Because I'm up at mom o'clock writing, and usually if they're up, they communicate, and they know I'm up writing. Um, this, the love of writing was so strong that, yes, I wrote while I was practicing dentistry. I mean, I did my painting aside for some time because I never... Yes, I paint. I painted the cover of both books. So, But I could put painting aside because the drive is not in me. It's something I enjoy doing, but if I don't do it, I don't feel like I'm dying. But writing was something like breathing for me, and I could not go a day without it. So I have been writing all of my life. Uh, The first novel that I wrote, I was a preteen, and my literature teacher used to stop the class 10 minutes before bells rang so I could read a chapter to class every time. 
But I think my family didn't want me to be a writer because those stories were so darn sad. They make this one look like a joke. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think this is the time that we have to end the, the, the event. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you. There is there just one thing I usually like to end my talks with, and that's a verse from Sadi, the master of Persian poetry and philosophy. When people ask me, why do you think people like your book? I respond with this verse. A word that comes from one heart has no, has no choice but to land in another. Thank you for letting my words land in your hearts. Thank you. Thank you.